I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. (laughs) We break down the craziest shit in art and the simplest shit in art because, you know what? Art needs to be in everybody's life. It is what we do as children. It is our first, oftentimes, method of communicating outside of the womb. The gaga, goo-goo shit doesn't really explain the real stuff that's going on in your in your psyche, and your collected unconscious. So that's what we're here to talk about. <laughs> I didn't understand any of that. I'm so high right now. No, I'm kidding. I'm not, but not well, at all. you forgot but. to say who we're speaking to. Join us with our hosts, phenomenal artist Justin Bua, and me, art historian Lizzie Dastin. And today, we're going to break it down for you. And we are going to explore some art history hacks. There is this whole separate vocabulary that we use as artists and art historians. And we thought that it would be kind of cool to go through the keywords and then give you examples of, uh, of what that word illustrates. And then you'll be able to go off in a museum and impress people on dates and be yeah. very knowledgeable and have the tools that you need to better understand art. So, Well, it is very true. Oftentimes people go, oh, you know, I don't really get art or, you know, I can't really understand it or enjoy it or talk about it but that's really not true I think with the with some basic information you able you'll be able to peruse a museum or a gallery and feel like you are intellectually capable of absorbing it and talking about it and communicating it and I feel like oftentimes people think that art is too heady or oh I you know I, I don't know anything about it but I, I know what I like I hear that all the time all the time all the time <laughs> but it's like you don't need a degree like Lizzie or myself to talk about art or to love art or to enjoy art uh, but it does help to have a context about what these words mean and 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 just a context of the language because you are you're speaking another language and you really need the basics of it it's like when you when you go into you know when you go into a french deli in france you want to know the basics like Je voudrais le jambon sandwich. Oh, I was just going to say, je voudrais de croissant, s'il de vous plaît. De croissant, ça. <laughs> je veux le pain, je veux un café, café sans lait. So, so that's what we're doing. We're teaching you the scaffolding so that you're able to better understand your own ideas of art. Sure. Because I'm pretty sure that when you see a work, it's more sophisticated than, oh my gosh, I really like the colors. But if you don't really know the language with which to describe what you're feeling, then how are you able to digest? So I think the first the key phrase or key concept that we should discuss is composition. Oh. The big one. And for me. The biggest. Yeah. For me, composition is really storytelling. How is an artist using composition to describe his or her intent, to craft a story, to condense a story? So that's maybe the the narrative side of composition, but then there's also a more technical side, which we can get to. So Justin and I have talked about Bellows as a master painter, and we discussed Daggett Sharkies and also both members of this club. And I think that those are really phenomenal examples of composition because in that one condensed canvas, Bellows is able to share so much. We have race riots and we have that kind of tension. We know which fighter is 
moments from victory because of the way that his weight is shifted on one leg as opposed to on the back leg because the the guy that's about to get knocked out, it's a more defensive stance as opposed to an offensive. So all of these are tools that create a successful composition. Yeah, I think let's let's take a step back. And composition means to compose. It means how do you lay out space? How do you lay out the spatial awareness in a uh, in a square or in your canvas area, right? So that's really what it means to compose. It's much like a composer. You're conducting, you're a conductor, you're composing an orchestra. And you have to think about it a little bit like you're a director, okay? So you're a director, but the only difference is you're responsible for the lighting, you're responsible for the art direction, you're responsible for the actors, you're responsible for everything. You're controlling the narrative. And by controlling the narrative, you're controlling how the viewer experiences your painting. So oftentimes when I do composition, because I'm you know, talking from, I, I deal with it all the time, I like to compose pieces with uh, a lyricalness and a rhythm. A lot has to do with my own dancing and, and how things, I believe that gesture oftentimes is the most important part of composing. How do you break up uh, the figures in space and make them move within these within these parameters, you know, because you still have your canvas, you have to compose that within. You can't go off the canvas, although in contemporary art, oftentimes they do. Exactly. And, Thank and, you for and, that and amendment. And, and in graffiti as well, like you can use, you know, you're using you're using the landscape to compose as well. But I like to compose with a sense of lyricality and rhythm and gesture, which is the action of the pose. And so I often use a very classical, traditional system of S-curves. I often have things all in an S-curve. And if you look at the Renaissance masters, the Renaissance masters all composed with an S-curve and C-curves. So later on in illustration, you have the Dean Cornwells and uh, a lot of those guys who also took that and made it more illustrative, but they always use the S-curves and the C-curves to compose. Now, let me just explain what an S-curve is. Another word for that is contrapposto. And it actually started even before the Renaissance in antiquity. And so the Greeks, when they were sculpting in the archaic era, weight in all of the figures was evenly distributed. The figures are very wooden. Think even to Egyptian statues that you might have seen an image of. Or hieroglyphics. Yeah, hieroglyphic, exactly. So a relief or an in-the-round sculpture. An in-the-round just means that you're able to walk around the entire thing as opposed to a relief, which is a shallow carving. So a contrapposto that happened in classical it, I Greece. Think it's, yeah, it started happening primarily classical Greece, sure. Yeah, and so the first example of this is this sculpture called the Critias Boy. And mm -hmm. little side note, I saw the Critias Boy accidentally. I didn't know he was at this museum and promptly wept. But anyway, so... <laughs> wow. <laughs> art is power, people. So what a contrapposto means is essentially that your body weight is distributed in a non-equal fashion. So one hip might be cocked mm -hmm. up and it's just a way of emphasizing the curve of the human form. And so literally, the body takes on this FS shape. And so that's why... Yeah, but that's not... But respectfully, that is not an S curve necessarily. You can have... It can be... It can be, but I don't think contrapposto and S curve are synergistic all the time. 
Because how, contribution, contrapposto is just the distribution of weight. That's well, all that means. So, yeah, but I think that it's used primarily to indicate this S curve. Well, the human being is, is, is the spine is an S curve. So that's, you know, that's basically why we, you know, why artists compose with an S curve or with C curves because it exists in our body. There's no straight limbs. Otherwise, we would be architecture and we would fall to pieces. We would be, we would crash. So everything is on an angle and everything does curve. And so that's the idea. But I, you're, you're right to a certain extent. I mean, contrapposto usually has an S. But when I talk about S's, you know, I'm talking about uh, the entire composition. It could be mountaintops and cityscapes and the way that, you know, like angels, like a Tiepolo painting where angels are apotheistically heading to the heavens, you know, and in the corpuscular rays of the sun, you know, (laughs) Uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking about the entire composition designing overall as an S curve. Oh, I haven't heard it used in that context, only the specific one as related to the body and tethered to this notion of contrapposto. But can you explain then the difference between an S and a C? Yeah. So an S is two C curves. That's all it is. It's the S curve is literally the letter S. Think about the letter S, but really elongated out. Not like a tight Superman S, but like a long C curve and then another long C curve. So that when I teach like gestural drawing, I'll have the head as an S curve. The neck is, I'm, I'm sorry, the head is a C curve. The neck is a C curve, but going the opposite direction. And if you think about that flow, that flow is very much like a waterfall because the body is composed of 80% water. So the interesting thing is when you stop having the the C curve energy, you get stagnation. You get this kind of bacterial parasitic stagnation. And you can feel that stagnation in really bad wooden figures. A lot of students, you know, will draw very wooden figures. And a lot of the people that draw with gesture, like the great, you know, like a Michelangelo or, or even Rembrandt, you know, like all these guys who really draw with a really great understanding, you feel a movement and an energy that feels like vitality in life because we are composed of water. So, you know, we're these bipedal hominid primates that are, that are water-based and you have to draw us like flowing water. And when you stop the flow of water and you stop that electricity, then you feel death. And then you could play with that, right? So then in composition on the very high level, you can play with that and you can have a dead figure or, you know what I mean, a very static figure. But that's just one aspect of composition. Oftentimes, composition, even in the classical era, was based on a triangle, just a triangle. Because that stabilizes. Sure. If you think of lines, if there's a horizontal line, or a vertical line, or even a pyramid. Da Vinci uses a lot of pyramids in his structures. That is going to slow your eye, stabilize the whole scene. And then on the other hand, if you have these sweeping diagonals, then that gives a sense of movement. So Mm -hmm. these are are techniques that artists will use to communicate some kind of message within the composition. So again, to me, it all kind of goes back to elements of story. So if your story is about the... Virgin Mary and the Christ child, Mm -hmm. then you might be more interested in the stability of a triangle or verticals and horizontals. But on the other hand, if you want the dynamism of an ascension of Christ, then maybe you have diagonals. Uh, Yeah, I I think that you're right. I think that uh, all of the, all of the lines and all the, like if you, every painting could be broken down to a very simple form. You know what I mean? If you look at like the bellows and the bellows is very triangular, you know, and oftentimes I see artists and I've done it myself and I've been fascinated by it is composing, uh, 
on the David Starr. You know, composing with David Starr is amazing. Composing with the Golden Mean is amazing. Composing with the Fibonacci sequence is amazing. I like to think about fractals. I love threes, fives, and sevens. I can't ever have four figures. I can't ever have six figures. I hate it. I hate it because it feels even. And if you can't break it into the sequence of your composition, in a way, it feels too rational to me. Unless you have a giant figure in the foreground that's like, you know, in shadow. But for me, I really feel like three, like when I do figurative uh, painting and composing, I always like to compose in three and five, sevens, nines, you know, thirteens. But when I have, a, when I have figures uh, that are four, it's really hard to figure out how to break up the space and fours. So oftentimes another trick, if you guys are any of you artists out there and if you guys are learning or if you look at a painting, in your mind's eye, think about dividing the painting in half. Think about looking at the painting as four corners, but then divide it in half and then divide it into another half. And then from one corner to the other, draw a diagonal. So you keep dividing it, dividing it, and dividing it. Then if you look at the greatest painters in the world, you think about how they played with that space. It becomes really interesting. So always when you think about a masterful composer, you think about uh, artists who have really thought about breaking the space and the negative space. That's another great key to composing. Like what is if you trace the outlines of the main figures in the painting or the main composition, think about the negative space and it's got to always move. And then, I mean, come, here's why I composite. We could have like an, we could have like a, <laughs> it could be all we're, on we're doing a 10 part, <laughs> we're doing a 10 part series on composition. We're doing a 10, <laughs> a 20 part series on composition. So, uh, you know, we have, we, it, it, it's complicated. It's, and it go, and the great thing about composing is it's endless. You know, you could have a scene, you know, like Raft of the Medusa by Jericho. I mean, how many thumbnails did he do? Because oftentimes when people compose, they do little thumbnails, little thumbnails. They're, call, they're called th- thumbnail sketches. And oftentimes when I do a painting that has a power, I do 10 to 100 thumbnails until I get the energy and the feeling and the shapes that I want. And it's abstract. It's basically an abstract painting. It looks like a, you know, at that point, it can look like a Rauschenberg or a de Kooning, you know? Now you got me interested. And then this underdrawing is another art history term that you may come across is pentimenti. And a lot of artists will use this technique. It's basically sketching on the canvas first and using that as a basis on which to apply paint. So a pentimenti is an underdrawing And I think it's really interesting that you're talking about dividing the canvas in the way that you did with these quarters and then coming up with fractals because from the analytic side, typically art historians will talk about works in regards to thirds, how painters often divide the canvas in either going from bottom to top in thirds and so trying to create that compositional balance Mm -hmm. or, and then this gets into another word, perspective, going from the foreground, the middle ground to the background. So there there are those two sets of thirds. And perspective is a really interesting term and basically just means that 
the artist, if he or she is trying to adhere to naturalistic perspective, is trying to recreate the experience of the eye. So things in the foreground appear bigger because when something is closer to you, it's bigger. Mm -hmm. And then as the eye is further away from the object, then it's smaller. And then there's atmospheric perspective and just really being optically. Who created atmospheric perspective? This is a test. Uh, Someone in the Renaissance. Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, I think that it's debatable, but definitely during the Renaissance. I don't know if it is debatable. I think da Vinci invented life. (laughs) No, but I I know da Vinci, I I believe da Vinci did develop atmospheric perspective. And and by the way, I do know that everything we say is being scrutinized because there's a lot of listeners out there and we're not always going to be accurate because we have no computers around us. We're going right off the top of our dome. And a lot of this information is subjective and interpretive. And, and some so it's of it not is subjective, but when I talk, it's fact. And when, talk Liz, <laughs> when Lizzie talks, it's subjective. But the point is that when, if he did not develop atmospheric perspective, that's okay. I, we're just throwing, I'm just saying that he did. And you're saying that he, you're not sure if it, I he just did. don't like to speak in absolutes. Right. Because, no, I, right. Of course. You know. but, but absolutely he did. So <laughs> when he, when he developed that or whoever developed that, uh, it means that we get atmosphere by losing saturation in the distance. So in other words, things, figures, images are that are closer to the viewer have more pure color, have more saturation, and have more contrast. And are painted with sharper detail. Oftentimes, yes, unless you're doing something to trick the eye. And then as you go back in space, you're losing color, you're losing contrast, you're losing saturation, and you're losing the detail. So things become for the, you know, uh, blurrier or in artistically spoken, they become much more atmospheric. And that also depends on like, you could have always exceptions to that rule. If you have a figure in the foreground and he's in front of, you know, a, a smoke machine or on a mountain in a cloud, obviously he's going to be more atmospheric and blurry and you could have things in the background because you have light radiating in the background that are much more defined and sharper. But the reality is the rule is you will lose, you will lose color, value, chroma as it goes back into the distance. Yes. And what's interesting about perspective is that the shift from wanting to paint something that has a decisive foreground, middle ground, background, something that recedes into space in the way that an eye would perceive from, so moving from that to moving from bottom to top is really aligned with the shift from representational painting to modernism or something that's avant-garde. And artists at the the turn of the 20th century, suddenly they didn't want to recreate the world. And people in the Renaissance... Makes sense. Yeah. The goal was to simulate what it might look like to look outside of a window, to have a canvas be this transportive experience, kind of like what you said, trick of the eye, or the French term is a trompe l'oeil. And so you want to fool your viewer. And... Suddenly, during the 20th century, in the beginning of that, artists don't want to do that anymore. And there are lots of reasons as to why, but I think the avant-garde thinkers aren't interested anymore in receding backwards. They're interested in cramming everything from top to bottom, and so it's really a move to flatness. And so perspective, how we use perspective in our analysis, that really changes. Yeah, so there's many types of perspective, just to get a little technical here. We talked about atmospheric perspective and Leonardo da Vinci being the father of that, 
Check that out, Ish. by the way. <laughs> we t- and then we have not talked about linear perspective, which is actually you know one point, two point, and three point perspective, where you have a vanishing point that everything converges to a vanishing point. It's also known as the point of view or your eye level. So everything is an eye level as I look at you directly in the eye. If I stand on my, you know, if I, we're both sitting down, but if I stood up, my eye level is above you. If I go down on the floor, my eye level is below you. These are basic principles of poor, of perspective. So, you know, look, we're, we could, we, we talked about composition. We talked about how to break it, how to break a painting up. Uh, things that you can look for when you're looking at paintings, th- seeing if the, if the artist is thinking about those things is really interesting. Uh, also, when you look at a painting, you will notice, especially with a, cla- with a masterful paintings, you never have a figure smack dab in the middle. You never have a head in the middle. If you take, if you divide your painting up in half, and then corner to corner, you draw diagonals and you find the center point of your canvas, you will never see a head right in the middle of that. And if you do, that's a big no-no. So there's a lot of no-nos in painting. In traditional painting. In there traditional are no painting. no-nos in much contemporary sure, art. But but because it's but it is a very thing, it is a very common thing to do. Like when you're a kid, you notice that kids always put the head right in the middle, right in the middle. Yeah. It's really cute. <laughs> and they put it right in the middle there because they're not making a statement. They're just saying, that's the most interesting thing for me and that's what I want to do. And everything is iconic drawing, right? So the kids are doing two eyes as two dots. A mouth is a C-curve, right? A nose is an upside-down C-curve, <laughs> right? And then, the, and then the hands as usually three straight lines and you know the arms are straight lines and a house is a, as a cube with a triangle as a roof. So they're iconographically drawing. And so kids and and you know Manny does that the same way too. Manny draws iconographically. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I and a lot of a lot of adults to... do that because they never get past a certain level of drawing and but but what I notice is that when when people have a head right smack in the middle, it usually is it is a problem thing for the brain. The brain doesn't like to digest that. It's 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 annoying. Also tangents that's another important thing to look for in a painting. When you see the corner of a foot hitting the edge of the canvas and it's right there, it just feels something uncomfortable because the composition stops moving. And anything static, once again, we're talking about flowing like blood and like water or being stagnant like death or bacteria. So you don't want stagnation. So once you start getting too many tangential points in a painting, you start getting stagnation, and, and and a lot of artists do that. A lot of artists. Can will you compose. give an example? Uh, yeah, my own work. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, when when I, I, I would have to look at it, but I don't see many great paintings with weird, you know, tangents. You see Degas do it a lot. Like Degas fucks around with the with the integrity of composition. Well, because yeah, he's, because, because he was using a photo, by photography, right? But he never has bad tangents. If he's got a tangent. He's got a straight, powerful diagonal leading you to the composition and then a flower popping up and then something else. The eye always moves. It moves more geometrically. And Picasso, too. The eye always moves. Brock, too. The eye always moves. Van Gogh, holy shit, the eye's moving like crazy. But when you see artists that suck, you see tangents all over the place and it really bothers your mind. And even if you can't figure it out, it's usually because there's a tangent that's stopping mm. your experience from moving. And maybe it's not a purposeful tangent like it was no. for those masters that you mentioned. No, no, no. Never a purposeful tangent. It's an accident because they don't see that there's a clusterfuck of energy that's starting stagnation and brewing viruses mm. and bacteria, killing the painting experience My for God, the viewer. This just got really aggressive. 
Yes. So, <laughs> I well, just it's, wanted an, to it's, wrap a, it's up. an aggressively, uh, you know, bad thing, and your makes your eyes want to just twitch. Definitely. So we've talked about <laughs> those terms that you just yeah. uh, reminded us of. Also, within the realm of sculpture, there's in the round versus a relief, and a few other things that you should look out for. There's material, mm -hmm. and artists use a whole host of material. Mm -hmm. We have pigment or acrylic or bronze, marble. Some artists will use things like chocolate or lard and I don't gilding. know anybody that uses chocolate. But I okay. do. Uh, okay. And Tony, this sculptor in the 90s, she did this okay. incredible portrait bust, and one was in chocolate, the other was in lard. It's called Lather Lick. And oh. so you're able to see the degradation of each material. And so mm. chocolate holds a lot better than lard, but chocolate also oxidizes. I went and to so a, I, I saw, I, I'm so sorry, but I just remember that I went to a chocolate uh, shop and I saw all these different sculptures in Paris and a blue, it went with my daughter and, and we, we saw all these different, very intricate sculptures and chocolate. It was crazy. It was a blown, I was blown away by Yeah, it. it's phenomenal, really. Yeah. Every material that you can think of mm. could be or probably has already been used in art. And there's going to be a list of pros and cons no matter what you pick. But I think the artist's choice in material use can often tell you a lot about his or her intention. So that's something important to look out for. Also, there, oh, there's this is a, this is the problem because this is an overview and we can't get into it because we, we really can't. I just realized during this whole thing that like <laughs> this is fine, but we have to talk about chroma, we have to talk about value, we have to talk about color, we have to talk about edge, we have to talk about atmosphere. We cover perspective and, and composition. Symbolism, symbolism, symbolism I mean, is if, the biggest. No, but no, well that's different though. I'm talking about actual like painting techniques. Yeah, but I symbolism think that it's his own podcast. Sure, but that is an important term to be able to disentangle in order to understand work, sure. just like these technical ones. Okay, so what we're basically saying is the intention of this podcast was to give you some art hacks, and hopefully this has given you something. Manny, did you learn anything from this? I... About chocolate? Yes, he learned <laughs> only about chocolate. So I, I think... Uh, I think that we really have to deep dive into more, but hopefully this gives you an initial vocabulary to look at a painting, to walk through a museum and to be like, huh, wow, it's interesting how they broke the, the, you know, the canvas up and, oh, there is only three figures and maybe Blue was right when he was talking about threes and fives and Fibonacci and odd numbers and fractals. Yeah. I mean... We can get into fractals. We like, should. Yeah. But also it's important to know if an artist isn't interested in foreground, middle ground, and background, why is that? Is it because the artist mm -hmm. couldn't do it or is it because mm -hmm. the artist is trying to do something else? I would hope that they were just trying to play yeah, with that. Yeah, me too. I, yeah, I oftentimes go, you know, when I, I in my paintings, I, I like to think that I always have a foreground, middle ground, and background. And I, I also employ the techniques, my earlier work of Disney which I noticed with Disney, they would always have something way in the foreground so that the camera could like swoop in there, right? So they would have like a forest scene. I don't know. I'm just throwing out an example, but like a forest scene in Bambi and the caterpillar would be in shadow, but this giant caterpillar in the foreground, right? And then the camera would swing in and it would give you depth of space. And that's why they did it. It was a great way to enter into a scene and oftentimes artists do that too i did it in my in my uh behind the eight ball painting where the eight ball is right in the foreground and this giant sphere right and then you you you're looking from behind the eight ball from that perspective and you can see into the scene 
So it gives you it gives you a device. It uses a device to bring you into a moment and experience the moment. Then you could experience the smokiness and the felt of the pool table yeah, the and texture these, of it. And the texture of these characters that are playing pool in this world. But that's just another device. So just when you're looking at these paintings, look for the devices that they're using to make you experience this piece because a good artist will take you on a journey that you're not even like not even aware of. It's like the shamanistic experience where they're they're navigating you to experience a world that they've created and you don't even know what the fuck you're doing because you're on this crazy ride. Ah, oh, that's a really beautiful way of describing it. And now maybe you will have some better tools in order to interpret your own reaction to things. Yeah. So that's our hope. That's our hope. Now it's up to you to go experience and go enjoy art and go to galleries and go to museums and go online. Online is great, but it's never going to give you the texture. You know, it's never going to give you that real experience. No, you need the physicality. You need to see how thick, thickly the paint has been applied. You need to see the scale, the crackler. And crackler just means when the paint has been applied so thickly that it starts to crack with age. But that's not a, well, that's with oils. Not with acrylics. Right, right, right. With oil, sorry. Um, However, acrylics being in very new, relatively new form of of medium since I believe the 30s, we really haven't seen, uh, or 50s, haven't really seen acrylic around too long. So who knows what's going to happen to that plastic material. That's a good point. Yeah, we could have some crackler down the line. I never heard of crackler, but I used to eat crackle chocolate bars <laughs> all I, I the thought time. you were going to go, I used to smoke crack. <laughs> nope, never smoke crack. Never did that. That's too weird for me. We'll save that I, for the after I, show. I, I, I stay plants only. <laughs> all right, guys, on that note, I'm going to go take a toke and uh, see y'all <laughs> motherfuckers later. No, I'm kidding. I'll see you guys later. Thank you. Thank you.